Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm afraid there is no Michael Dwyer today, there is only Gary Kavner. Michael had hoped to reach out to someone and get them in to come in and do this lovely, heartening Christmas special where we could all talk about you know, the books and films we loved after a stressful year. But unfortunately, he's gone now, and it's just me. He will be coming back. He's not dead, or he hasn't left us. He's, uh... He's having some technical issues involving a laptop, so it's just me. Listeners of the show will know I don't really go in for a lot of the uplifting Christmas stuff, um, but uh, Michael has asked me to try and have an uplifting message for the Christmas episode, because we won't be back on Friday. I don't know if we'll be back on Sunday. Might actually take a couple of days off. This will be a short little thing, because I imagine most of us are getting ready for Christmas, So in the spirit of uh, Christmas and, you know, the whole uplifting joy to the world kind of thing, I wanted to talk about suffering. In particular, I wanted to talk about uh, Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Austrian psychiatrist. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was put into the concentration camps during uh, World War II. He was a Holocaust survivor. And Man's Search for Meaning is, if you haven't read it, it's it's a fantastic book. I I would recommend that you read it. It's not terribly long either. It's a couple of hundred pages. And it's basically a reflection on life in concentration camps and what that can tell us about people. I pulled out a couple of interesting quotes that I just wanted to talk about. The reason I wanted to talk about this is because I've been hearing a lot of people talking about this year and how hard the year is and how terrible the year is and all of these things. It's something I've, I've been thinking about over the last while. And in many ways, this has been a painful year for people. There have been lots of things that they would have wanted to do that won't have happened or couldn't have happened. or And there will have been many negatives and death, disease, pretty constantly. But those things are painful. But suffering is different than pain. In many ways, pain is inevitable in life. But suffering, to an extent, is a choice. It's how we look at that pain and how we conceptualize it, and how it impacts on us. It's one of the reasons why I talk so much about the great usage of psychological resilience in life, is that psychological resilience doesn't mean you'll experience less pain, it just means you'll experience less suffering. It's all very well and good saying to people, well, suffering is a choice, because there are certain things in life that are very simple, in but are not easy. So to say that suffering is a choice implies it's a choice one made, But simply knowing that to suffer is a choice you've made doesn't mean you can choose easily not to suffer because it relates to who you are as a person and how you react to things and your psychological resilience and also your understanding of the world around you. And so Viktor Frankl in his book talks about people in pretty horrific circumstances and what they were like. And so there were a couple of quotes I wanted to run into just to... um, just to one of them, just to go true. Here's one of the quotes from the book. Even though conditions such as lack of sleep, insufficient food, and various mental stresses may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways, in the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influence alone. Fundamentally, then, any man can, under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him, mentally and spiritually. One of the things I, I, I have particular interest in, I've, I've, a line I've always placed a great deal of uh, truth in is the idea that freedom is merely the realisation that you are the agent 
primarily responsible for your own actions, or more accurately, the belief that you are the agent that is primarily responsible for your actions. That doesn't actually need to be true. You just need to believe it to be true. I see in a lot of the, the modern world a movement away from that, to place BAME on circumstances to such a point that individual actions and individual responsibilities don't matter at all. And my concern with that, other than the fact I don't think it's correct, I think the individual always has a choice. Might not be a good choice, but the individual has a choice, is that I think it's also disempowering of people to tell a drug addict that they suffer from a disease and that they need medical treatment for that because you know, disease needs to be treated by external experts is in many ways something that feel makes us feel good about ourselves because it removes responsibility for the addict. And from my time working with drug addicts, one of the major problems that you run into there is that drug addicts are not pleasant to be around. They will tend to, in order to feed their addiction, they will tend to lie, to cheat, to steal. Depending on the strength of the addiction and the weakness of the person, there's very little they won't do. And one of the problems when they begin... Um, moving away from the addiction, begin dealing with the addiction, is that they then have to deal with the impact that they've had on the people around them. And that can be quite a destructive impact. So I can absolutely see why people, particularly families and drug addicts themselves, would want to position it in such a way that that, yes, they did it, but it wasn't really their fault because they had a disease. The problem there is that fundamentally issues like addiction cannot be treated by external sources. You have uh, mental or psychological addiction, but you can also have physiological addiction. Physiological addiction can be treated externally. You can purge the system of drugs, you can detox it, you can induce a coma if you really want to, although the research on this isn't great uh, in order to simply put the person under until such a time as the side effects have passed, and they have no physiological impact from uh, a lack of drug in their system. But you can't deal with the mental impacts. That old really trite saying that you can only help those who want to help themselves is fundamentally true. People have to decide that they want to do other things. And in many cases, addiction is a, um, the phrase is disease of the soul, which even if you're not religious, I think you can take the point. It is to do with how a person sees life. Certain people have a great deal of resilience to highly addictive things simply because of how they view themselves. But if you, if you tell people they're not to blame, you also remove the ability for them to take control of that and accept what they've done and use that, integrate that and push forward. And I think what we can see from, from Frankel's work is that you can put people into absolutely terrible situations, things that should break most people. And they will break a lot of people, but they won't break everyone. And how people break will generally be a product of their psyche and of their temperament. And so if you recognize that, and you recognize that you have a great deal of control over your life that you may not realize you have, it can be an immensely empowering thing. And hence the saying that freedom is the realization that you are the agent primarily responsible for your actions. Because once you realize that, you realize that many of the things in your life that you think are problems are things you engage with willingly. And once you understand that, and you understand that you don't have to engage with these things. You don't have to engage with any of them. You don't have to engage with life if you don't want to. Once you realize these things, and that everything there is a choice that you've made, even if it is not a great choice, it can, rather than leading you to break with those things, it can just lead to a great deal of comfort in them. And realizing that they actually aren't that bad, because 
you could stop this if you wanted to. And I found throughout my own life that believing that you have control over the circumstances is a balm to a lot of the more negative aspects of things. It simply means that you um, you handle it better. I said there that suffering in some way is a choice. It's, it depends on how you understand suffering. I mean, so if we look at what Frankl said, he said things like, um, if there's meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is in a radical part of life, such as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. But... Then he also said things like, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. Which again, would, would tend to say, you know, if you take those two things together, it would be suffering as a choice, but you're inevitably going to suffer anyway. But that is, again, an important point. Things that are terrible can become either not terrible, or in some cases, positives, if we see them in particular attitudes, or in particular lights. It kind of goes back to the Stoic philosophy's uh, point on it, that the external stimuli is real, but they can't make you do anything. They make, can't make you think anything. Those are internal processes, and those can be controlled. Stoics had a uh, meditative technique where they would constantly, uh, well, I say constantly, but usually they would do it at you know, set times of the day. They would think about the things in their life that brought them the greatest joy and the greatest sadness, and they would run through their life without them. They would try and visualize the deaths of loved ones, um, the ending of relationships, the destructions of business. And the end goal was that when those things, or if those things happened, you wouldn't be perturbed by them, that you would simply accept it. At the same point, one can use those techniques to increase your engagement with those things while they exist. Because if you think about it, this is a life of nearly limitless beauty and opportunity. At its core, when you just look at it, we don't really give much time to think about that because what is common is not considered. Things like airplanes. Man spent most of his history dreaming of flight. And now to us, it is a mundane thing simply because it is so accessible and so easy. In many ways, that is the problem of success. That you, great, you have these great successes and then people begin to think that what you have is simply the natural way of things, that there was no other way it could have gone, and that these things are not exceptional, they are mundane, and can be overlooked. You see a lot of that in the modern world, actually, in relation to human rights, or in relation to um, capitalism. Any successful system sows the seeds of its own destruction, because it simply becomes so ubiquitous that people don't understand that what they're seeing is the product of a system at all. It simply becomes the way things are. And so trying to consider what life would be like without those things or what life would actually be like in a more base state can really show us the things around us that we should be paying more attention for, we should be more grateful for, we should at least recognise how rare those things are and how much good there is in things around us, even in the very minute things. But to a certain degree, that can't be helped because it's... You're encultured into a certain set of beliefs about what is normal and what is worth paying attention to. And by not growing up in a time when these things were special, when these things were dreams to be achieved rather than the practical mundane facts of life, we can't really replace a lot of that wonder. But I think by, by thinking about it and by considering how unusual it is, things like flight, but even the most mundane things that we can gain appreciation for them, even 
the ease with which you can go to a shop and get a sandwich. There was a there was a case uh, a number of years ago in which a man decided he would make a chicken sandwich from scratch. And I think it took him the better part of a year because the processes that go into that are inc- actually incredibly involved. Everything from raising the chicken to processing to butter to the bread itself are all incredibly time-involved processes, which... And of course, we get, because it's a sandwich, why would we have to think about it? But if you consider what that would have meant for most of human history, to have food that easily available, it is a wonder of an organically grown system that such a thing is possible at all. And most of life is like that. When I say that life is a, is a place of infinite beauty and, and opportunity, when you look around, everything is like that. The things that have grown organically from human nature and the relationships that have formed, and most of the relationships we have within our own lives, even if they're only with ourselves and our immediate surroundings, are things we should take far more joy in than we do. But again, it's very simple to say that and very difficult to actually make that a reality. There's a difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing something in the way that you have integrated it into your psyche and you feel it not just intellectually, but emotionally, it, it is a composite part of you. I mean, I will often see academics and activists who say they believe certain things, but then you look at their behavior and realize they may intellectually believe these things, but they don't actually believe them. If you look at what people do versus what they say, many very intelligent and fine people do not actually integrate what they say they believe into their actions. And if you don't integrate what you say you believe into your actions, you don't believe them. Not fundamentally, not deeply. You may think you believe them, but if you don't care to actually integrate them and live them, I don't think you do at all. It is one of the deep amusements of life that if you take two people, one of whom is a world-class academic, who's lectured widely, read widely, is written widely on the nature of joy and the need to find joy in the world around him, and you take another who is simply capable of taking joy in the world around him, the latter is the person who actually understands the concept more because they can apply it. The former intellectually understands it but may have no ability to actually implement it. And education doesn't really help a lot in this regard. It does remind me of the the G.K. Chesterton quote, which is that... um, Man is perishing for lack of wonder, not for a lack of wonders. The world is uh, incredible in its its scope and its nature, even the fact that it exists at all. And yes, I realise I sound slightly like a Hallmark card generator at this point, but we can you can decide to look at the world in that way. In the same way you can look decide to look at the world in a way which says it's broken or it's evil or it is whatever. Those are choices. And at the end of the day, most likely the only person they'll impact upon are you. So you can choose to look at the world as something which is irredeemably broken and ugly, or you can choose not to. And frankly, I think the advantage of deciding that the world is not irredeemably broken and evil and ugly is that you're right, or you're far closer to right than a person who decides it is. 
So Stokes did that because they wanted to achieve a state called ataraxia, which is um, difficult to translate, but balance or, or tranquility, maybe something of, of that nature. It was to be in, in to be in accordance with one's nature and not motivated by passions. It, it's related, but not the same as a um, as a different idea called apatheia, which was um, freedom from unhealthy passions. It's uh, it's usually presented by people, actually, when it comes up. You hear it when people are talking about Buddhism, this idea of tranquility, as this really peaceful state where you're, you know, you're at one with nature. When you um, read about some of the Stoics and the things they did, uh, not all of them peaceful men. And I've mentioned before that I think if you look at Marcus Aurelius, who's obviously a Roman emperor, but also wrote the Meditations, which is one of the most famous books of Stoic philosophy, he must have been absolutely terrifying to deal with. Because you could argue that he was in a, you know, a state of ataraxia and he was in acceptance. and He also uh, massacred uh, and slaughtered a great deal of people and crucified them all up and down Gaul. So you had a person who was going to kill you, your family, your entire culture, and your way of life, simply because he had said it was the thing that needed to be done, and he was totally at peace with this decision. There was nothing you could offer him, there was nothing you could give to him, you couldn't threaten him, you couldn't bribe him. He had decided that simply this was the proper thing to do, and he was going to actualize it. And it wasn't going to bother him at all. Which, if you think about it, you want an opponent who's motivated by something distinctly human. You know, hatred, love, jealousy, greed. Those are things that people are aware of and are, you know, are there can be dealt with. You can bribe a greedy man. You can trick an angry man. Someone who simply decided that you all need to die uh, by reason alone and thinks that that is the natural way of things is not a man you can deal with. You either need to kill him or drive him off, or he'll do the same to you. So there is a there's a tendency to think of these things as, as peaceful, whereas they're not. Nature is red in tooth and claw. Again, looking at Frankel's work and this move to remove individual agency from choices, because we can't say that people should suffer the consequences of their choices, be they good or bad. But one of the lines in in Man's Search for Meaning, that I think is, is particularly relevant, is Frankl says that prisoners who lost their faith in the future were doomed. With their loss of belief in the future, they lost their spiritual hold, and they let themselves decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. Remember, I, I think it relates to this. If you are not responsible for your actions, you're being treated like a child, and you don't have a future of your own creation, you only have a future of others' creation. I mean, long-time listeners will also probably have heard me say that I think many of the progressives are deeply racist. And it's in this sense I think they're racist. I think they're racist in that they treat minorities, well, not just racist, also sexist and homophobic and all of those things, because they treat certain groups, certain minority groups, or simply certain selected groups, as if they are not as capable as they themselves. It is a sort of take up the white man's burden, that these people need to be protected and civilised, and you know, while they may be of superior moral virtue, 
they need the help of these almost entirely white progressive figures in order to uh, you know in order to properly grow, uh, which I think is a deeply racist position, frankly. Uh, it's one of the reasons I never got into this whole progressive feminism kind of thing. I just I don't think of wi- so little of women. In the same way, I remember when we started having things like Believe All Women, I found that quite difficult because women are people, and a certain amount of people are bastards, and a certain amount are liars, and a certain amount are both. can't really believe all women as a group, because you can't, you can't take any group of people and say, all of these people are worth of being believed simply by virtue of being in that group. I think that's largely nonsense. But I do want to just close on... Um, Two, two quotes from one, which is, I think, particularly interesting. One was the line from Frankel that the knowledge that a person was either a camp guard or a prisoner told us almost nothing. Human kindness can be found in all groups, even those which as a whole it would be easy to condemn. And this, I think, relates slightly back to that line about progressive racism. There are many people in groups which are heavily oppressed and badly treated by society who are simply not good people. There are other people in those groups who are good people, but the mere involvement with a certain group often doesn't tell you a lot about a person. And there is a tendency to talk about groups as if they are monolithically good or bad, particularly in relation to power dynamics. That simply isn't the case. Now, obviously, this is the most extreme example of it, because this is a man who went through the Holocaust Effectively saying that on the nature of kindness, there were concentration camp guards who were kinder than the prisoners. But that actually somewhat makes sense. You, They rounded up an entire people. Not all of them would have been good. Not all of them would have been bad, obviously. In the same way, you had concentration camp guards who would have been deeply conflicted. Now, in this instance, you would argue, I would think most people would argue, that perhaps you should find a new uh, role of employment if you're a concentration camp guard and a good man. But at the same time, when you look back a lot about a lot of what was said at the time and the way these things were positioned, you the Nazis started talking about things in relation... So obviously the concentration camps didn't just deal with Jews, they also, Jews, they also dealt with homosexuals, the disabled. Some were death camps, some were work camps. There was a wide array of these. But they started talking about two things. They started talking about life's not worth living, which was in relation to what was initially the relatively voluntary euthanasia, and then became forced euthanasia. And that wasn't just the Nazis. That sort of language was very common across Europe, across um, America, in relation to people with various disabilities. It was decided that they had lives not worth living, and that it was for their own good that they would be sterilized or euthanized or put into institutions for the criminally insane. That was primarily, by the way, pushed by progressive voices at the time. It was generally seen as the compassionate response that this was to happen. A lot of the people who were against it tended to be heavily religious conservatives because they thought it was playing God. Now, I suppose you can argue that sometimes you get lucky if you follow a particular religious scripture and you come to a position which others will later see as moral. But that was just the nature of it. The idea that you could improve overall health by removing problematic elements and that in the long run that was good for those elements as well 
was just not one that sat with the religious. But the language, when you, when you see about it, the language is the language of empathy. It is lives not worth living. It is about the greater good. When you actually look at a lot of material from uh, the time, the presentation of Nazi Germany on certain aspects of itself to the population of Germany was largely positioned as a common good approach. And one final quote on as we finish off the uplifting Christmas opening is this one. Frank will talk about when one suffers, one can see that as a terrible thing or one can see that suffering as an opportunity to excel in that particular goal. People who have had difficult lives have had opportunities to know themselves and to show what they're made of and to deal with difficult things in a way that people who have had easy lives haven't. And it's, in many ways, it's one of the most perverse sort of findings of psychology that you can give people everything. But to a certain degree, hardship and the ability to test yourself seem to be integral drives. And if you coddle people too much, if you remove them from all hardship, in many ways you can lead to the development of quite stunted people who are terribly afraid of anything they aren't in control of, or simply don't know themselves because they've never had those difficult times. There was the uh, argument, you don't really hear it now, but the argument was made that the worst time to be alive is between great moments, whether they be great wars or uh, exploratory periods or periods of great discovery, because those periods have clear uh, socially derived goals. During the war, you have to fight. During the period of exploration, you can explore. During the period of scientific discovery, you can discover. They have a purpose. People in those times have a purpose. It might not be an easy purpose. It may be a terrible purpose, but it is a clearly defined purpose and a reason to keep living. In between those periods, people have to find that purpose from themselves. And as social structures have broken down, as religious institutions have broken down, as we have seen people atomize more and more, people have had to, well, they really haven't had the option to rely on those institutions to provide meaning for their life in the same way they had to, or they would have before traditionally. And now they find themselves having to make those decisions for themselves. And for some people, that's deeply liberating. And for other people, that's simply not possible. They don't know. They don't know what they want to do. And now they need to make a choice. And one of the things about having choices is that choices can sometimes be quite destructive, even if there's positive to them. The, the one I would bring to forward particularly is uh, the decision about when or not you will get pregnant. For most of human history, this was something, simply something that happened. You didn't have to make a choice for it. Now you do need to make a choice for it. And on one hand, that offers great freedom to people to engage in sexual behavior and types of relationships that simply wouldn't have been possible traditionally because there would have been the constant threat of pregnancy. So on one hand, it's a great improvement in freedom. But on the other, when you look at the polling of people who are in their kind of 50s now, 40s, 50s, who have got to enjoy, the first generation that got to enjoy from cradle to grave, this sort of thing, and you ask them what their regrets are, an incredible amount of them say they didn't have as many children as they wanted, or that they put off having children too long, and were not able to have children in the end. And that, I think, is, is the flip side of it of a choice, even a choice which most people would say was immensely positive.
by making it a choice that you had to make at some point, you introduce paralysis because it's an important choice. And is there ever going to be a perfect time to have a child? There'll always be a reason not to have it. And so certain people just make the choice anyway, or they they get into a circumstance where they're happy with it and go ahead. But other people, they put off making the choice or they try and make things perfect. And so they get to the end of their lives and realize that they should have just done it. But by that point, it's too late. But there's always a reason not to have a child. I mean, if you ask people today, I think they'd say, well, children are too expensive or, you know, we don't have a, a proper place to live or it's just not economically viable. And yet there are people who have six or seven children on the average industrial wage and they manage. Do they manage as comfortably as two people on the average industrial wage with no children? No, I wouldn't imagine they do. But it's absolutely possible to do. But we convince ourselves that it's not possible to do or that it would be bad to do so. And the end result is that there's always a reason like that and we don't end up doing it. And so choice can paralyze, choice can harm, which is a a difficult concept for many people to get. In the same way, I should note that when we say that freedom is the realization that you are responsible to your choices for your choices, What about if your choices have been bad? What about if you have chosen poorly and you have a moment where you realize that you are exactly where you have decided to be, given the choices available to you, given your circumstances and abilities, and that you bear some responsibility for what's happening to you? That is not a moment which is going to be kind to every person. And the flip side of, of this And the reason that people move to structural reason from individual reasons is that sometimes, even if it is perfectly true that a person is responsible for their situation, it is not comforting to them or to people around them to hold to those beliefs, because then you could have someone who has been deeply ill-treated by life, but has never made the choice to walk away, or has never made the choice to better themselves or has never made a choice to take the steps that would have limited that abuse. And then to say, well, whatever about the abuse itself, I don't mean physical abuse here, I just mean abuses against the person as a general kind of concept of from life and from people. Yes, whatever about those things happening to you, maybe you couldn't have stopped them initially, but you didn't do anything to fix it, you didn't do anything to improve it, and that's on you, and therefore you bear some responsibility for it. That is not a comforting or kind thing in certain circumstances. So I can absolutely see why people do not go for that. But I would make the argument that empowering people with the knowledge that they have control over their own life to as great a degree as possible, while difficult, is the appropriate thing to do because it better prepares people to control those aspects of their own life. And the earlier that realization sets in, the easier it will be. But that's not to say it is an easy understanding or that it will give you an easier life. I think in the long run, it will give you a better life. But no one ever said a better life is easier. Acknowledging that most of the mistakes in your life are not the fault of other people, but are the fault of you and who you are as a person. That may not be your idea of a good Saturday night. I think overall, once you've made that realization, you can look at why you made those mistakes and you can improve it. And as I said, the earlier the process starts, 
the better the results will be. And that sort of brings us to the, the final quote I wanted to bring up from uh, Frankel. Uh, and it's this. We need to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead think of ourselves as those who are being questioned by life daily and early. Our answers must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibilities to find the right answers to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. Now that very much reminds me of a quote from Edmund Burke. Um, Because Burke said, Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. In proportion as to their love to justice is above their rapacity. In proportion as their soundness and sobriety of understanding is above their vanity and presumption. In proportion as they are more disposed to listen to the counsels of the wise and good in preference to the flattery of knaves. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more there must be without. It is ordained by the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperament minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. I think that the link between those is that Frankel is talking about how people should live, that they should live in what they deem to be right action and right conduct. And Burke is saying, is talking about the political consequences of not doing that. And I think, in many ways, the modern world is not a failure of... um, the, The failures of the modern world, and there are great successes of the modern world. But the failures of it... I think the, the the religious right from about the 80s were right. A lot of it is just moral decay. A lot of it is that people do not act as they should. And because they don't act as they should, the government needs to become increasingly matronly or paternalistic in its understanding of the population. And there need, must be more laws and more laws. Because why not? Now, a certain degree of that is simply people accepting that the government should stamp out certain behaviours that they deem to be unacceptable. It's also a question of what it means to have right action and right conduct, and that, I think, is fundamentally a question for each person. People like the Stoics would have said it means to live in accordance with nature. What that means is also slightly debatable. Frankel, oddly enough, in his... um, Actually, it's not odd at all. It's, It's only odd when you consider the public perception versus what was actually said actually discusses Nietzsche at a couple of points in his book. And Nietzsche has this reputation as a nihilistic philosopher. That wasn't what Nietzsche was about. Nietzsche was about the rejection of nihilism and being able to create uh, moral frameworks and accept them and use them for your life. He was, in fact, in many ways, the anti-nihilistic philosopher. But Nietzsche has a, a famous line that a man who has a why can bear almost any how. And that comes up several times in Nietzsche. And you can kind of see that a lot in Frankel's work, that if you are living in the right way, if you see life in this way, that it's not about asking what the meaning of life is. It's about living life in such a way that you define the answer to that question. Then very few things can damage you. They can be painful. And you may suffer a while for them, but eventually you will be able to continue moving forward to whatever your end goal is. And so I thought, uh, uh, I'm not sure if that has been as uplifting as Michael had wanted it to be, nor as Christmas spirity, but I think it's an important point. Man's search for meaning is absolutely well worth reading. What we make of our lives is largely 
up to us as people rather than the circumstances in which we find ourselves. You can define a good life in a certain way and you can live it. You have choices as to how that happens. Sometimes there'll be good or bad choices. But fundamentally, you are the author of your own life. And you can decide you don't want to do certain things. You can decide you want to do certain things. That's why, I mean, the philosophical line is that the only important philosophical question is suicide. Which I think ties into this point quite strongly. Fundamentally, suicide is a choice about whether or not you want to engage with this life or not. Your Camus said that there's only one really serious philosophical question, and that is suicide. And I think that is, is absolutely correct in this point. If we're talking about the choices you make and how they will shape your life, suicide is, is fundamentally a question of engaging with life or not. It is an immensely serious philosophical question, and I think a foundational question that shouldn't be left to the, the depressed and the adult to consider. It's something you consider at most points of your life, I think. And I don't mean that in a terribly, you know, depressive way, but rather that by recognising that it's a choice, and that not committing suicide is also a choice, you can at a rather fundamental level understand that life and living is therefore a choice of yours. There are very few people who can't make the choice to end it. Again, as I said before, I think a world of, of nearly infinite beauty and opportunities. And so I think we as a society would actually be far better off if we thought about suicide before it got to the point of leaving it to incredibly depressed people who live in a society in which talking about it is largely not forbidden, but socially uncomfortable. And so you're starting to think of it in a position where you're, you're predisposed towards it, where if you simply think of it before, when you're having a good life, you can better contextualise the costs and the benefits of it. And then... When you decide to live, yeah, that's a, you have effectively answered the most pressing and most important philosophical question, whether or not you'll be or not be, to uh, bastardise some Shakespeare. I don't think he would mind, he bastardised many things. And so by deciding to live uh, and rejecting non-existence, you have effectively solved the most pressing philosophical question ever devised by man which seems like it should be worth at least a certificate you could put on the wall. If you've decided to live, surely you should live in the best way possible. And you should enjoy the moments that you have, and you should look with renewed eyes upon the things around you, and, you know, the beauty and grace in them. And those, those small things, the things that make up life, the things that we would generally see as unimportant or beneath our notice, are actually part of what makes life so worth living and makes it so much uh, makes it worth so much to us it's simply the fact that uh, we don't see them as important but that again is is a choice it's a way we look at the world and then within the world we can look at the things that both nature has built and that man has built upon nature and in its nature that are um, incredible things even the, the the smallest thing can be seen as an object of wonder. It's one of the things I, I disagreed most with Edmund Burke upon when I when I read his his writings. He he said that there can be no honour in uh, the work of a hairdresser or a tallow maker. I think is the other occupation he put forward. Nor of the more servile professions. 
a position with which I would have to rather fundamentally disagree. There, there is honour and there is distinction and there is purpose in any occupation a person chooses to do in order to support themselves. They fulfil a necessary function, but also many hairdressers are business owners. They're things who have built things. They've built more than the average person. The wages from being a hairdresser can lead one to support one's family, to do things of that nature. Hairdressers can give back to community in their personal lives. I think there is honour and there is distinction and there is beauty in anything that a person chooses to do which allows them to live the life that they have decided is the good life and to support those that depend upon them. We simply don't see them that way because they're so mundane. But uh, that is that is the way I like to think about life. I like to try and pay attention to the smaller things around us and the good that they represent because there is an incredible amount of good in these things. There's also an incredible amount of bad in other things and we shouldn't shy away from them. We should try and have an accurate representation of the world. But too often I think people become preoccupied with the negative and fail to see the... Uh, the small victories and the small glories that surround them on every side. And that, I think, leads to a warped view of life and, and the world as being this terrible place because you do not see the small private victories. And I think it's in those, the, the small things, the small inconsequential things, that we often see the best things of life and that give us reasons to continue living and continue experiencing life. Actually, it reminds me of a, a poem by G.K. Chesterton called A Ballad of Suicide. Now, I unfortunately cannot remember all of it, but the uh, what I can remember is um, the world will have another washing day, the decadence decay, the pedants pall, and H.G. Wells has found that children play. And Bernard Shaw discovered that they squall. Rationalists are growing rational. And through thick woods one finds a stream astray. So secret that the very sky seems small. I think I will not hang myself today. And on those hopefully uplifting words, I think I will leave you. I am... Um, I suppose... I, just, I don't think it's an odd thing to end something on... Um, the topic of suicide on a, something I was told to make as uplifting as possible. I think it is not a topic we should shy away from to the, to the degree we do in society. Because as I said, by leaving it only to the depressed, to the adult, to the ill, to start thinking about whether or not they want to exist themselves, we have stacked the dice in the favour of non-existence, whereas to consider it, or to think about it, when we are in the best of health, when we are living fantastic lives, I think the Stoics were right. To do that balances us, and it gives us an ability to look at the things we have, and to realise the importance of them, and how much joy they take for us. In the same way, it can show us ways we can improve our life, if we look around and see that there are not things that bring us the amount of joy or that are not beautiful around us. 
enables us to see that there are steps we can take, small cumulative steps to improve our lives, to bring it into a position where we do want to live and we do take joy in that. I'm. This probably goes against some guideline on media because if you've ever read the guidelines on suicide in media, they're basically, don't talk about it, say everyone, uh, there's helplines available to you, uh, don't bring it up, people shouldn't consider it, people shouldn't think about it, and let's keep it totally taboo. A situation which I don't agree with at all. But which is the way things go, and I, th- I suppose in a way that is another way of infantilizing people to say that this isn't something that you can consider because it's a bad thing. Okay, so what if it's a bad thing? It's still a choice that's available to people, and I think simply think that it should not be a choice made by people at the lowest ebb they'll ever have in their lives. Anyway, so this has been TRSI, probably for 2020. I hope you've enjoyed, or at least found somewhat entertaining, this semi-directed ramble on the nature of suffering and man's search for meaning, and I hope I will see all of you next year, where we will continue to talk about truth and the how you should enjoy living and beauty, and also incredibly irritating things that politicians do that are ill-thought-out and have negative impacts. All the best.